Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Wow. Take out the caffeine drip from his arm. No, it's great. It's good to see you. And we are in the second week, as Danielle said, of this series we're doing called Unlikely Heroes. And throughout the messages in this series, we're going to look at some of the people who stand out in the Old Testament, key leaders who served as judges. They were the legal, the spiritual, the political, and or the military leader of their day. Judges takes place in this 500-year gap between the death of Joshua and the rise and the reign of the kings in Israel. And it reveals to us, more than anything, how the nation falls into this very predictable pattern in their relationship with both the judges and with God. It's a pattern I think most of us can identify with. It's clearly visible. You'll see it as we read through the passage this morning, clearly visible in Judges chapter 4. And this is the fourth time now that the nation's going through this cycle. Here's what Judges 4 says. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud, the judge, was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harashoth Hagoyim. I I get extra credit for the amount of city names and tough pronunciations in this message. I just, extra credit even. Because Sisera had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, They cried out to the Lord for help. You know, as I've read this passage and reread this passage over the last few months, thinking about this whole era, I've wondered, what was it like to live through these dark, oppressive cycles in history? What would it feel like to live under the brutal cruelty of Sisera and his army? He had these 900 chariots fitted with iron. They were killing platforms. They were used to wipe out the weak and the wounded and the frightened. And Sisera and his charioteers had perfected this to an art form. What would it have been like to live with that kind of cruel oppression day after day after day for 20 long years. So true to form in this cycle that just keeps repeating, the people cry out to God to save them. He raises up a judge and he does save them. But God's got a big surprise in for the people of Israel and for us this morning Because to save the nation from this cruel, oppressive general, God raises up a woman. Seriously? A woman? I mean, that had to be shocking to them. This woman who's a prophet is now becoming the judge of Israel, and they were in this male-dominated culture. Deborah is, to me, one of the most remarkable people in all of Scripture. She is named as a prophetess, a judge who decides legal cases, and a military leader. She is without equal among the 12 judges, and nearly without equal in biblical history. 
The legacy of Deborah is told in two chapters in the book of Judges. Chapter 4 tells of her legacy in story form. Chapter 5, with a little more detail, tells her legacy in a song. You will all be grateful this morning that I'm going to focus on chapter 4, and I'm not going to sing to you for 30 minutes. Yes, Scott, you can applaud. Okay? So we're going to look at chapter 4 with some details thrown in uh, from chapter 5. And in the passage, I think we will see how Deborah's success comes against some pretty extraordinary odds. Here's how the passage continues. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. That's her judge function, her legal function. She sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun. Those were two of the tribes of David. And lead them up to the Mount, to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops into the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak listens to Deborah sharing all this and he goes, Okay, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm not going. You can, you can just kind of hear Deborah in this passage. This big sigh comes out of her that he's not willing to listen to God's command, believe in God's promises. And she sighs and says, I'll go with you. Certainly, I'll go with you. But because of the course you're choosing, essentially because of your lack of faith, the honor in this battle is not going to be yours the Lord is going to deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, you would think, if this is your first time through the story, that Deborah's basically saying, oh, I'm going, but if I go, I get the glory. It makes sense with the story, right? So they, they gather up 10,000 soldiers, they head out to fight Sisera, and then the biblical writer throws in this random detail that doesn't seem to have any logical connection to the story. Now, Heber, the Kenite, who had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, who was Moses' brother-in-law, and Heber pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim. I've always struggled with that one. Near Kedesh. Uh, if you're a little bit of a geek like me, you can actually go into Google Maps, type in those cities, and you can pull up their location in Israel. It's there. These places exist. And this really seems like this random detail stuck in the middle of the story. Here we are talking about Deborah and Barak and this army they're amassing and how they're going to defeat Sisera with God's help. And then the writer throws in this detail. Like there's this man and this woman who can't get along with their neighbors. And so they hook their trailer up to their truck and they drive out to the desert and set up camp. It's like, really? What does this have to do? It's weird. It's random, it seems. But as the story goes on, we find out it's not. So Barak takes all the troops up to the top of Mount Tabor, and this is what Mount Tabor looks like. It's this huge hill. For me, it kind of reminds me of Devil's Tower. It's just this huge hill in the middle of nowhere, and there's no other hills around. It's like this obvious thing in this plain. And what's more, you can't get to the top of it, let alone with 10,000 troops, without somebody seeing you. 
It's not a great military strategy. Sisera has a spy who comes to him and says that Barak's army is headed to the top of Mount Tabor. And so Sisera seizes the opportunity, brings his army, including his 900 chariots, into the Kishon River Valley near the base of Mount Tabor. Chapter 5's victory song gives us a detail that we don't get in chapter 4 when it says that at the point that Tabor begins, that, I'm sorry, that Barak begins descending Mount Tabor, leading his men into battle, the skies open up and pour rain. Kind of like that microburst we had a few weeks ago. Remember that? That kind of rain falls in the valley, saturates the ground. Quickly, water starts pooling. And if there's any truth about chariots, chariots and mud just don't mix. They were literally stuck with these heavy chariots in the mud. They were ineffective in the battle. And when Barak's army attacked, based on that, the Canaanites faltered in battle for the very first time. Now, Sisera is this seasoned war general. He recognizes that the battle's turned, and he's no fool. So he gets out of his chariot, and he starts to get out of there. He literally is heading home. And a few of his soldiers manage to get out too. So they're running, and Barak and his army see this. They wipe out all the soldiers in the valley, and they begin to pursue Sisera and these men and kill all of them except Sisera, who still evades them. Sisera begins to realize he's not going to make it across the Jordan River and get home, so he has to come up with a plan B. And he staggers up to the only structure that is in his path. And you guess what it is? (laughs) It is the tent of Heber the Canaanite. uh, The Kenite. He was... In verse 11, this random detail all of a sudden is relevant. And Sisera runs towards the tent. And as he does, Jael, the wife of Heber, sees him coming and goes out to meet him. He begs her for protection. He begs her for just a drink of water. And she goes back in the tent and brings out this drink that was normal for them and very comforting. It was this mixture of milk and curds. Sounds like Exciting, doesn't it? We have samples of that in the cafe for you after the service if you'd like to stop by. Um, It was kind of like a yogurt smoothie without the blender, right? Maybe they had a chain of these and they called them yogurt chunkies. I don't know. (laughs) Is that enough on that? You kind of got the picture, got the smell in your head of what this is. For some reason to them, it was nourishing. It was filling. It was comforting. And then Jael takes Sisera into the tent. This this seasoned general has had his warm milk. She now tucks him in with a blankie. Like, puts this blanket over him, promises, if anybody comes up asking for you, I'll hide you. I'll protect you. You can trust me. And disarms him. And so, in the tent, in the dark, belly full of warm milk, warm blanket over him, what do you think he does? He falls asleep. She has completely disarmed him. And Jael, Heber's wife, at that point, picks up a tent peg and a hammer, goes quietly over to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground. And he died. Yeah, that's a little unnecessary to say those last three words. We all kind of get the picture of the tent. He's dead, right? You're not coming back from that one. 
Moments later, General Barak shows up in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael goes, oh yeah, I know where he is. Let me show you. And Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled. Sisera is dead. The passage goes on to say that King Jabin's oppression ends shortly after that. And all of this has happened at the hands of women. This is an amazing story. The Bible tells us that stories like these are all warning markers in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. And it's not talking about going to sleep in a tent when there's a tent peg nearby you. That's not the lesson. God has some things to teach us from this story of Deborah and Jael. Let me suggest a couple of ideas this morning. One, what we often consider to be random events in our life may in fact be God at work. Think about the random stuff in this story and what it looked like to the people who were living this out. Why in the world would Heber move away from his family, move away from his community, live in solitude with his wife in the middle of the desert? Why? Is it just coincidence? What are the odds of a rainstorm coming at the exact moment that Barak is descending Mount Tabor to engage Sisera's army? What are the odds, given that this took place in their dry season when for months they got no rain? Was it just luck? And there's no logical reason for Jael to risk everything to help the Israelites and take care of Sisera. Nobody had written that into the battle plan. (laughs) Jael had no dog in this fight. She was a foreigner living in Israel. This was not her problem. There are so many details in this story that seem random, seem out of place, seem disconnected, and only later on do people realize that God was at work all along the way in ways that no one understood. I think we live our lives that way. Personally, I've struggled to come up with some analogy to help me understand this, and the best one I can come up with is that we live our lives looking at the back of a tapestry. If you've ever seen one, someone make a tapestry like this, you know what I mean. When you see the back of a tapestry, the pattern isn't obvious quickly. What you see is a bunch of loose threads hanging. It looks disorganized. It looks disconnected. And I think at various points in our lives, God may flip the corner of the tapestry over and go, here's just a hint at what I'm doing. But a lot of it we don't understand in the moment. We don't even understand with a few years' perspective. But when we get those glimpses, we look back and we're able to know that in all things, God is working together for the good of those who love Him, for those who've been called according to His purpose. God is at work in ways that we may not see or understand as we walk through this life. But He walks with us. He works in the circumstances of the good and the hard things we walk through of the painful and the joyful areas of this life. I think the major lesson in this passage, though, is us learning that God gifts and uses women the same as men. Now, if Westridge has been your only church home, that may not sound like a revolutionary idea to you, but it is. For some of us, that statement is light years away from the environment that we grew up in. 
It's light years away from my home experience growing up and from my church experience growing up. I was raised in an incredibly conservative environment. It was an environment that taught that only men could lead. Or at least only men could lead the really important stuff in the church. Men led all the committees in the church. Men served in all the leadership roles and functions at the church. Men were the only teachers in the church, at least up front on a Sunday morning. And women? (laughs) Women were taught to remain silent and follow the men's lead, and if they were married, to follow their husband's lead. This wasn't just assumed or implied in the churches I grew up in. It was taught and modeled as God's will for the church. Women were always to take on lesser roles. Always. And there have been individual Christians, there have been churches, there have been entire denominational structures building elaborate systems and elaborate processes based on a couple of very difficult passages in the New Testament. Difficult for us to understand. And they build all of this around those two passages and allow them to color everything we read in the Bible that is contrary to those passages. As I got older, I've had my doubts, and I don't believe that at all now. You can't read a story like Deborah's. You can't see God at work in her life and through her life and cling to that conservative line of thinking. The writer in Judges uses seven grammatically unique and feminine words in a row to introduce Deborah as the first solo leader of Israel. She has extraordinary uh, authority in a patriarchal society. And it just emphasizes to me again that God's ways are not always the same as my ways. Deborah is so far from what we would expect in this story. She holds a position of authority as a prophet, Authority as a military leader, authority as a warrior, authority as a spiritual leader. When she goes to battle, it's real clear she has authority over her general, Barak. She is a heroic leader of epic proportions. And Jael, she emerges as this unsung hero in the story. She single-handedly slays the ruthless villain, this quiet housewife, an unknown outside of this story, exhibits incredible strength and power and wisdom. And in their culture, both Deborah and Jael would have been considered little more than property of their husbands. They had no voice. They had no rights. They had no life outside of their husband's shadow. That was typical in that culture. These two women moved beyond the stereotypes They break down all of the preconceived ideas that we might have and that their culture definitely had. They throw off their culture's sense of propriety and appropriateness, and they are not the only examples of this in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, women were prophets. Women were teachers. Women were apostles in the New Testament. Women were local church planters, local church leaders, and local church mentors. Far from being an anomaly, Deborah and Jael stand out as examples that God gives spiritual gifts not based on our gender, but based on the work he calls us to do. And I'm proud, I am proud, 
to be a part of a church that believes that way. I'm proud to be the husband of a wife who has strong leadership gifts. And honestly, it is one of the greatest joys of my life when people meet her and get to know her first without knowing who I am and what I do for a living. Because then they don't relegate her to that role of pastor's wife. She is so much more than that. And there are incredible female leaders in our church. We have three women who sit on our leadership team. And they are insightful, they are visionary, they are discerning, and they are bold leaders. We have Danielle, who teaches on our teaching team. I cannot wait for the Sundays when she's up here to teach and lead us and direct us in how to follow God. We have women who serve in leading many of our ministry teams. They lead our local outreach in the Elgin community. They lead our international outreach teams. They lead and serve in every area of our church. And my hope is that if you're a woman and you're a part of Westridge, you feel empowered and you feel freedom to lead here. I think the only door that may be closed to you for leading at Westridge if you're a woman is we're probably not going to ask you to lead a men's community group. Not because you couldn't. Yeah, I might do it better than some of the guys are doing. But it's just, it's a men's group. Well-meaning people through the centuries have drawn lines. They've drawn lines based on color. They've drawn lines based on gender. They've drawn lines based on economic status. They've drawn lines based on age. And the list goes on and on. All those lines do is divide us. All they do is minimize God's gifts poured into each one of us. All they do is cripple the work that God wants to do in our world. Paul's really clear on this one. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And because of that, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Culture and history were absolutely set against Deborah ever succeeding. Who would have ever believed she'd be one of two women, two women, who would end 20 years of vicious cruelty and bring freedom. But Deborah was a strong, gifted leader who listened to God, figured out what he wanted her to do, and followed him. That wasn't universally true in this story. There were whole groups, whole tribes of Israel who held back, didn't get involved in this battle against Sisera. One of them, the descendants of Dan, the tribe of Dan, the entire people group, Judges 5 says, Dan just lingered by the ships, hung out at the docks. I have no idea what was going on there. I don't know, maybe there was a party that lasted for weeks. Maybe they were just afraid. Or maybe, maybe they just couldn't handle being led by a strong, gifted woman. Whatever their reason the Bible condemns them for just hanging out by the ships. That's not what we see in Deborah. 
What we see in her is a leader of the highest caliber. She is the wisest and most courageous person in Israel. And what if Deborah had decided to sit this one out? What if she just hung out by the ships? What if she stayed on the sidelines? We need more Deborahs in the church. We need more Deborahs in this world. We need leaders, women and men, who will challenge us to give and pray and go and sacrifice. And men and women who will personally lead us in that by their example. Leaders who will teach us how to live for God with wisdom and courage and faith. Now, just so we're clear, this is not like setting up some major appeal for volunteers in the announcement slot. That's not what this passage is about. That's not what this passage is teaching us. This is about discovering the joy that comes into our life when we are fully engaged in using all the gifts that God has given us. This is about living a radically different kind of life. So I want to challenge you this morning. Be done with excuses. Be done with waiting. Be done with distractions. Don't be a Dan. Figure out what it is God has gifted you. Figure out what it is God is calling to you to do today. And take a bold step. Be a Deborah.